Church, open your Bibles this morning. We're going to be in Luke chapter 1, the Gospel of Luke and chapter 1. And I have to ask you as we open up this morning and start to think about Christmas, I'm wondering if you're looking around like me and saying Christmas is in the air. It's kind of all around us. In fact, if you've looked around, you've noticed that Christmas tree lots have begun to pop up. If you've been driving around at all, you've noticed that Christmas trees are on the tops of cars. And, well, I'm kind of curious. Uh, I'm going to have a show of hands here of how many of you are in the uh, I go get a cut Christmas tree and how many in the artificial Christmas tree category. First, how many go cut a Christmas tree and bring one of those? All right. And how many are in the artificial category? Oh, yeah, increasing numbers of us. Denise and I joined that tribe last year. And I do have to tell you that taking the tree this year out of the garage into the living room was very easy. I kind of, li- I kind of liked it. So Christmas trees are, you know, one sign that Christmas is here. You also have, of course, the Christmas lights. How many have braved the ladder already and uh, hung a few Christmas lights? Quite a number of you. Some of you waited for the good weather right now, right? Okay, that, that was a joke. I mean, you're going to be on the rain. We had some good weather last week. But lights, you know, that's another way of kind of saying, hey, uh, Christmas is here. But there's another one, and I think it's maybe even the telltale sign above even the others, and that is Christmas music. Nick even reminded us that Theo is loving, I want a hippopotamus for Christmas. That's an awesome one. But Christmas music often, you know, tells us that Christmas is here like no other. And, you know, whether you're in a Christmas or a department store and you hear that Christmas music or maybe, you know, a number of commercials. I'm surprised how many commercials have some Christmas ditty to them right now. Maybe some of you have Spotify and on your Spotify playlist, you've got a, a, famous, a famous album that you're listening to or a favorite album or a favorite, uh, you know, playlist that you've got that's Christmas oriented. All of that is speaking to the fact that it is Christmas right now. I'm wondering if you could guess what is the number one Christmas song in America today right now. I won't have you shout that out, but I bet some of you could guess what they are. I have, I looked up on Billboard charts, the number one Christmas song, Mariah Carey, All I Want for for Christmas is You. That's what she sings. Uh, Number two is Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree by Brenda Lee. And number three is Jingle Bell Rock by Bobby Helms. Those would not have been my guesses, by the way. Maybe Mariah Carey, maybe. But I wouldn't have guessed the others are that high. I did have to look down the list. By the way, there are 100 on this list. I did have to look on the list and say, how far down the list do I have to go before I would get something that's got a religious tone to it? And I had to look to number 47 on the list. Nat King Cole, O Come All You Faithful. I think that's probably telling us a little bit about our times also that religious music, Christian music that's related to Christmas is, you know, sliding down the charts as it were, and that probably shouldn't be a surprise to us. The world's always going to kind of tend to gravitate towards things that are about Christmas that aren't really about Christmas at all. Well, there's so many things about Christmas that remind us that Christmas is here, and I'm arguing today that Christmas songs are one of the most important. Of course, the songs range from uh, uh, the absurd to the inspired. So again, all I want for Christmas is my two front teeth might be in that absurd category. 
Uh, I saw mommy kissing Santa Claus, you know, that's in the absurd category. Grandma got run over by a reindeer, Christmas, you know, that one's in the absurd category. And then you've got songs like Oh Holy Night and Handel's Messiah that are just really soaring and inspiring. This might surprise you, but Christmas music didn't have its beginning in Europe, didn't have its beginning in America. Christmas music actually had its beginning around the birth of Christ. In fact, while Christ was still in the womb. Here's what I want to tell you today that's a bit of a surprise for some of you. The first Christmas song is recorded right here in the Bible, Luke chapter 1. And I want to tell you something special that Luke does because he's the only gospel writer that does it. He gives us four Christmas songs that are given to the characters that he's describing the Christmas story in. I have a little chart up here on the board that I think will be helpful for you. Mary is the first one that has a song that's attributed to her. The next one in line is Zechariah. We're going to learn about him, by the way, in two weeks. And he's a priest, and he has a a song that's attributed to him. Then, of course, we have the angels, and they're going to visit the shepherds in the fields. And then we have this man named Simeon, a righteous man who's at the temple a lot, and he's old, and he's going to have the chance to hold the baby Jesus. He has a song that's attributed to him. So four songs that Luke records that's unlike any of the other gospel writers. And when we say song, I mean, that's the way they describe it again in the heading, even in your Bibles. But it's probably more like a poem. I mean, it's possible that they sang that, but we really can't be sure of that. But for sure, it's poetry. And one of the ways you can really tell that, and by the way, my paper Bible kind of does a a good job of this because I can look at the whole page. And the four sections are set off very differently. They're set off much like poetry. And again, the translators of the scriptures in the English are giving you a hint and saying, this is different kind of literature. We have a story going along here. And now all of a sudden, inserted into this is more what would be termed a poem or again, a song. So they're highly creative, and they're going to explain something about the, uh, the, 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 the Christ child that maybe we couldn't get in other ways through common literature, and so these songs are an important part of our Christmas. Well, before we read this passage today, it's going to be Mary's song. Let's remind ourselves just a little bit about who Mary is. She is a, a young lady. She is born into a Jewish family to the parents of Joachim and Anna. She is a common girl that probably lives uh, in in an area that's an agricultural area. She has household chores that she does. Around 15 or 16, probably, that's about the time when most girls were betrothed to be married. And her parents chose for her, it's an arranged marriage, her parents chose for her Joseph, the carpenter, who would be her husband. And so she goes to the betrothal ceremony, which, again, says you're going to be married, but then she's going to wait a year until she is married. And in that year period, she's in her parents' home, and bam, it happens. The angel Gabriel comes to her and says, Mary, you have been chosen to bear the child. And in her mind, she's thinking, well, that's impossible, because Joseph and I have never been intimate. I mean, so how is this happening? And the angel has explained to her, Mary, you've been chosen. You're going to carry the Son of God. 
And that's what we typically call the Immaculate Conception. And that's what's attributed again to Mary. And that's what we're going to have a chance to hear more about. Now, she does this. She's pregnant. Mm, she kind of wants to step probably out of the public eye. So she goes to her aunt's house that's further off into the rural area. And she knows also something about her aunt right now. Her aunt is also pregnant. She's an older lady. And she's, got, she's pregnant. She's going to be, by the way, carrying John the Baptist. But she is going to go to her aunt's house that she knows she'll understand. And so she makes her way to Elizabeth. And that's where our story picks up. We're reading this morning Luke chapter 1. And I'm starting in verse 39. Here's what it says. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby, John the Baptist, leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy." And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. My soul, excuse me, Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. And my soul, spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. We get this picture, again, and I've got a picture up here on the screen for you of what that little reunion might have looked like. And Mary's pregnant, Elizabeth is pregnant, and Mary is just so exceedingly happy, especially at the greeting of Elizabeth. And so Mary starts off her song by saying, my soul or my heart magnifies the Lord. And that word magnify in Latin is called magnificat. And that is what this song has been known as now through centuries, through generations. This song has been known as the magnificat because she says, I magnify the Lord. She's just overflowing. She's just so happy and so excited about that. And so she's just letting it all out and telling about this God. Now, again, she's not talking about herself here. She's talking about the Messiah here. And somehow she has indication of how life-changing this will be for all of the world and the world even that's not even born yet, the world that's on its way. So she says again, my heart magnifies the Lord, and she is going to give us reasons why her heart is magnifying God. Reasons why God is worth being magnified. And again, to magnify means to make great or to exalt someone or something. And so she's saying, God is really great, and I want you to get that. 
And so I'm going to tell you the reasons why my heart is magnified on the inside of me by explaining who God is and how he acts. And so that's what we're going to follow along with Mary on. And I hope that that also, this Christmas season, is going to help you also to magnify God in your heart. Here's Mary's first reason why her heart is magnifying God. It's because he lifts up the humble. She says in verse 48, he's looked on the humble estate of, her, of his servant being herself. So she's saying, he looked upon me in my humble estate and gave me this opportunity to bear this child. And so she's saying, that's one of the great things that he's done for me, but he's done great things even preceding me. Now, again, I want you to say with me for just a minute or, or take this in for just a minute. She's saying, my heart is magnifying God over what's just happened. But record scratch, I'm sorry, but <laughs> Mary, you're pregnant. You're out of wedlock. Uh, do you think your parents are going to believe this? Do you think Joseph is even going to believe this? This hardly feels like something you'd magnify God over. Now, again, God's going to make his way through an angel to, to Joseph and also visit him to say to him, take the, take the woman to be your wife. But she doesn't know that yet. And so somehow Mary is saying, the thing that's happened to me is not a bad thing at all. And again, for a teen girl to be at that space, amazing. I mean, it's, it's, it's really amazing what she is feeling at this moment. And so she's praising God and she's saying, you come to people in their humble estate. And she's considering herself, again, one of those people that is humble, is a, a really a very low-level person, but somehow God is saying, I'm going to use you in the midst of this. Now, let's get this straight real quickly. Mary is somebody who's very special because she's chosen to carry the Son of God. I mean, that makes her in a category all by herself. But she is not somebody who's divine. She's not somebody who should be worshipped. She's not somebody that we pray to. She doesn't have that category. And by the way, she's not perpetually a virgin either. We have recorded in the scriptures, she has other children by natural means. And so Joseph is involved with the future children. He's just not involved with this one. And so that's what we know again about Mary. Mary defines herself by her humility. She is somebody who's received from God in the midst of really her, her, her low status of being somebody that you wouldn't guess would have this kind of honor given to her. Now, here's what Mary knows. She has been rewarded by God in her humility, but she knows that others, everybody around the world, is also rewarded by the similar humility. In fact, that's a theme in the Bible over and over and over again, is God comes and lifts up the humble. He blesses the humble. In fact, I'm just going to give you three verses. I No, no, no doubt I could give you a hundred today, but here's just three that just make the point. Psalm 25, verse 9, he leads the humble in what's right, and he teaches the humble his way. Matthew 23, verse 12, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. James 4, verse 6, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so this idea of being a person of humility, uh, that's something that's very important to Mary, and she's saying that should be important to us. That's one of the ways that we exalt God is because he is this person that is constantly finding the individuals who are of low status, and he's filling them with good things. He's finding the individuals that are empty, and he's doing good things for them. I have to tell you, in an, an article put out by the New York Times, I, I read this one and, and kind of just grinned a little bit 
because they're talking about what would be termed the new humility. It says the new humility has humility not as it's ever been before. As a matter of fact, it may be the exact opposite of what we normally mean by humility. Lately, it's pro forma, perhaps even mandatory for politicians, athletes, celebrities, and other public figures to be vocally and vigorously humbled by every honor awarded, prize won, job offered, record broken, pound lost, shout out received, uh, thumbed up. She says, during an, even a random search of the internet and social media, you'll find that humility is really everywhere. It's a soap opera actress on tour who's humbled by the outpouring of love by her fans. It's comedians who are humbled by the big laughs. It's athletes who are humbled by their reportedly good deeds on the field. Christmas volunteers are even humbled by their generosity and their holiday spirit. And yet none of these things sound really like being humbled. On the contrary, they all seem exceedingly proud themselves hashtagging their humility to advertise their own status, success, sprightliness, generosity, moral superiority, and luck. The author ends the article this way, when did humility get so cocky and vainglorious? Is that the kind of humility that Mary's talking about? The kind you tweet about? The kind you say, oh, wow, this was so good, I'm so humbled by this. No, that's not what Mary's talking about at all. Mary here is saying that she knows that God goes to the people that are not full of themselves. The people that have an emptiness on the inside that needs to be filled. A heart that is open to God. God is very eager to fill the vacuum of that. And if you find yourself in that state this morning then you're in good company with Mary. If you find yourself to be on the side of, well, those that are a little more proud or those that are wearing humility as the badge of the honor, you're perhaps going to be disappointed, Mary says. Well, there's a second reason why Mary magnifies the Lord. And she says, I magnify the Lord because he upends the world. She's announcing that God upends or he frustrates the world's expectations. Verse 51, he scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. And she's saying God is constantly demonstrating his power with his mighty right hand or his mighty right arm. And all the time, especially in the Old Testament, God's mighty right arm is demonstrating just how much power he has that cannot be stood, upstood against. And in fact, it'd be like trying to stop the sunrise. I mean, that's how much power is in God's right hand. And so she's saying he is using that to scatter a certain kind of people. Not everybody. He's scattering the proud, and he's scattering the mighty. And she uses three couplets here of words, words that are at the opposite ends of the spectrum to each other. And so she talks about the proud and the humble. She talks about the mighty and the weak. And she talks about the rich and the hungry. And she's saying God has a, a, a temperament to move towards the ones that are on the lesser side of the pole and she's saying, that would be me, and that's what God is constantly doing. And he's upending the world's expectations in this way because he's rescuing the people that are the weakest. Now, I don't know if you've ever had this experience before, but I've, I've been in other countries, and I love to be in lines in other countries because I get to see human behavior in a way that I don't see it oftentimes in my own country. If you've been in some other countries, you'll notice that when people queue up, meaning get in line for something, 
there's not much of a line. It is basically cram your way to the front, knees and elbows, and the one that can kind of push the people out of the way the fastest is the one that gets into the front. If you've ever experienced that, it can be a little, well, you, you can be so surprised by it because it's like, wow, we have lines that even have, uh, you know, the, the things that keep lines in order and they sneak around the, the, the building and all the rest and they're like, no, no, we just push in and the one that gets to the front the fastest wins. That's so many ways the way the world works. The ones that win are the ones that are strongest, they're the s- smartest, they're the fastest. And Mary's telling us something. She's saying, you know what, in God's economy, that's not the way he works. So many times, God is the one who's actually paying attention to the person that can't get to the front. And God is a penchant. He's looking out for those individuals. And he has a heart for those that are poor and forgotten. And God is upending the way that the world typically works. Margaret Mead was a famous anthropologist in the last century. She was teaching a class, and a student asked, when you're going through an archaeological excavation... What is the first sign of civilization that you find? And the student anticipated that she probably would say, well, it's the pottery, or it's the fish hook, or, or it's the spearhead. You know, when we find those, we're finding you know, examples of civilization. But she surprised this student and this class by saying that the telltale sign of civilization is a healed femur. Now, let me, let me track with you. I had, had to kind of look up my bones again. A femur is this bone right here. We might call it the thigh bone. And she's saying, the sign of civilization is when you're going through your archaeology and you find a bone from a skeleton that's been healed at the femur. Why? That is indicative that somebody had to look out for somebody else. Somebody had to go while that person was healing and go out and hunt for them or gather some food for them, berries for them. They had to come back. They had to tend to them. They had to feed them. They had to help change them. They had to care for them in the midst of their wound in order to get well enough to be able to operate again. And she's saying, when you see compassion in operation... It's not the law of the jungle at that point. That is the telltale sign that civilization has now formed in some good way. Do you know God applauds that? And God says, oh yeah, that's, that's exactly the point that I want to get across. I'm upending the way the world's going about things. It's not run to the fastest to the, to the front. It's somehow creating this space in which all are helped, all are cared for in whatever ways they are needed. And God is saying, I'm rushing towards those that somehow feel as though they're fighting against the machine and they're just not winning at all and they're left very hungry and God says, I want to fill those people. There's one more thing that Mary says. The third reason why Mary is singing about the glory of God is that he has fulfilled all of his promises. He has helped, verse 54, he's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. And that word mercy there is an important one that she uses. And I think she's tapping back. Again, we have this described to us in probably Aramaic or Greek. Those are the two languages the scriptures are written in. But she's a Hebrew at heart and knows Hebrew. And she's hearkening back to a word, mercy, that's used in the Old Testament. And that word is hesed. And it's very difficult to to translate that word directly using one English word. Because one English word just won't contain it. 
It's oftentimes means favor or love or mercy. But, but here's what I want you to know. Ultimately, it is about somebody, God in this case, who is having a, a, a favor shown to somebody because they're in great need. And God is constantly demonstrating his, has said his mercy to his people in the Old Testament because he's saying, I'm going to care for you even though you don't necessarily deserve it. And she gives us a name that God has expressed this kind of mercy to, and she says it's Abraham. And that's a good choice, by the way. Because if you remember, Abraham is promised he's going to have a son, and he's promised, Abraham, look up at the stars in the sky. As many stars as you can see in the sky, that's how many descendants you're going to have. But Abraham and Sarah, they get weak, and they say, you know what, God's just not coming through on the promises. He, he promised a son, and now we don't have one. So let's go off, and we'll just do our own little thing over here with Hagar, the handmaiden, and we'll make our own heir. And God says, well, I'm going to let you do that, but that's not the right way. It's not what I'm planning. And God continues to love them and gives them Israel, or gives them uh, Abraham, Isaac, and he is going to be the one that is the chosen son. And so that's what God is doing. He's constantly saying, I'm fulfilling my promises even when you can't see it or don't believe it. And what she's saying here is Jesus, the one that's in my womb, is the fulfillment of the promises that God's made all the way back there. The one that's inside of me is the ultimate fulfillment of all that, of God keeping his promises from generation to generation to generation. Let me see if I can give you an example of this. And I'm going to use uh, a story of Pastor Vic. And Pastor Vic decided he was going to test out the famous Nordstrom 100% guarantee return at any time, at any uh, condition. And he said, I went out and I bought a blue blazer at Nordstrom. And he said, I wore that blazer for about six months. He said, the whole time I had it, it's like that piece of clothing and you get it and you bring it home and you wear it and you're like, you know what? I, I, it's not really what I want. He said it was the wrong color of blue. He said, navy's come in different hues and it was the wrong color. And he said, furthermore, this blue jacket just picked up all the lint. I was constantly trying to get the lint off of it, and I couldn't. He said, I wore it for about six months, and then I said, I don't like this anymore. And I put it in my closet, and I left it. He said, I came back a year later, and I looked at that jacket, and I thought, I've now owned that jacket for 18 months. I will never wear that jacket again, and I am going to put the Nordstrom challenge to the test. So he said, I kind of got all my gumption together, and he said, I kind of got my speech ready. And he says, I decided that I really needed, needed to make it look good. So I got the jacket out, and I put a bit little more lint on it. Just because just I, I said, you know, it's got to look the case here before I take it in. He said, I marched in. I went to Nordstrom, and I found the first clerk that was in the men's section, a man with a handlebarred mustache. And I went up to the man, and I said, I'm here to put your 100% guarantee and satisfaction to the test. I have a jacket I bought from you 18 months ago. And yes, I've worn it a lot, but I'm not happy with it. it doesn't, it's not the right color for me, and it just gathers lint all the time, and I don't like it. I would love to get something else. And Mr. Handlebar Mustache looked back at Pastor Vic and said, What took you so long? Come on, let's go get you another jacket. And he said, 15 minutes later, I was leaving Nordstrom with the jacket that I loved, and it was even $75 more expensive than the jacket I originally bought. And he's saying to us, God is like Nordstrom. Because 
God has made all of these outlandish promises. Some that are way too good to even sound like they could be true. And we're always like, I don't know, should I put that to the test? Should I believe that? And God wants to respond the same way that the handlebar mustache man did. When you finally say yes, he says, well, let's go do this for heaven's sake. What took you so long? Of course, I'm about what I've said. I'm always about. And I'm going to be good for it. Mary magnifies God. She puts him on display because he is so great. And Mary's song is to a young lady who has a baby out of wedlock, and you'd think on the surface that couldn't be a good thing, but it is. And as strange on the surface as it sounds, it's the deepest blessing this woman would ever have in all of her life. How about you? Are you prepared to glorify God this Christmas? And if so, if you say yes, how might you do that? The number one way that you can glorify God this Christmas is by declaring your own need. You can be like Mary in that way and say, I'm really nobody that's that important. But God, I would have you fill me with your goodness, with the things that most matter to you. And so it's really coming to the spot of saying, I can't really, at the deepest level, help myself. I can't save myself. I am not the smartest in the world. I'm not the strongest in the world. But I'm very grateful that God is the one that's coming to those of us that are very ordinary, and he's filling us with his good things. If you can declare yourself to be empty, then you are in a position where God is ready to fill you. And I don't know what that emptiness means for you today at Christmas, but my hunch is if you look just a little bit, you'll find something that you say, wow, I can't resolve. You'll find something where you say, wow, that's above my pay grade. You'll find something where you say, "Mm, man, that's frustrating. I don't know how I'm going to continue to live with that. And that is all the best space for humility to operate and for God to come and say, like Mary, I want to magnify myself in you. And I'm going to do that by giving you my son, Jesus, as your Savior. Let's pray. Lord, what a great story. And not just story, but really something that happened. You chose to dwell in Mary in this way, to plant a baby on the inside of her that would grow to term in nine months, and to bring a Savior into the world That would change everything. Mary declares that her soul magnifies you because of who you are and the way you work. And we too pause this Christmas season to say our souls, our hearts wish to magnify you also. Lord, thank you again for the way that you work and the tenderness and compassion to you you have for all peoples. May we be the individuals that are on the side with Mary that says, wow, we need the help. Rather than those that are the proud that say, we've got to work that on our own. Lord, fill us today with the right temperament, the right character from you and from your spirit. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.